You're listening to the CEO Series with Carl Moore on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome to the CEO Series. I'm Carl Moore from McGill University. Each week, the CEO Series takes you inside the minds and lives of some of Canada and indeed the world's top leaders. Some of the world's top leaders have indeed spent time with us, like Justin Trudeau, Mohammed Yunus, Nobel Peace Prize winner, and Dr. Joanne Liu, international president of Doctors Without Borders, Medicine Sans Frontières. This show gives you a thin, well, perhaps not so thin, slice of the kind of thoughtful leaders leading some of today's most successful organizations. Today, I'm delighted to be sitting down with Samira Sakia with me in my MBA CEO Insights class tonight. Samira is the president and CEO of Knight Therapeutics, a leading pharmaceutical company in Canada. Knight Therapeutics serves 11 countries in Latin America and here in Canada, focusing on high-quality branded treatments to improve patient health. Her company recently announced its placement on the Global Mail's annual ranking of Canada's top growing companies. Congratulations, Samira. She also sits on Desotel's International Advisory Board, the Advancement Board here at McGill, and more. Samira, thank you for joining us today. So where did you grow up and what did your family do? Um, I was born in Pakistan. Okay. Uh, my dad was in banking. We moved to Saudi Arabia when I was seven. Then we moved to the UK. Then we moved to Toronto. Uh, then five years later, moved to um, Miami. And I graduated, so I, I was in Toronto from like grade six to grade 10. Mo did high school, 11 and 12 in Miami. When I graduated high school, my discussion with my, and I, I applied to five universities, two in Florida, two in Miami, two in DC and McGill. Okay. Got into everywhere. I desperately wanted to go to George, uh, to Georgetown. Um, and I told, my discussion with my dad was, because he, gets he was getting transferred, if I go to University of Miami, which is where he would have liked me to go to, if you leave Miami, then I'm staying because I'm not going to change schools when I do university because throughout my life, every couple of years, you're changing schools. And at that university level, it's a lot more complicated. And my dad's in banking and he did some very simple math of Canadian dollar, Canadian citizen, because back in the 80s, there was only two tiers and um, Georgetown, foreign student, simple math. It was cheaper to live here than to even go to University of Miami. Um, so I came to McGill and then I ended up just staying here after. You speak French, I presume now? I do now. Okay. So. Uh, I didn't then, like I, I had had high school French um, at the, like I, I don't know how many of you are not from, like in the BCom program, there is a lot more separation between foreign students and local students because yeah. the local students, they grow up together, they have their friends and yeah. everybody's together. I was mostly in residence and most of my friends were from out of town, so never really had to speak French. I started, when I started working, made a, and I really, my high school French was, the, the French teacher was from Europe, so when I came here, I realized I was an idiot because I didn't understand a word of what people were saying. And it's really the accent, like you just don't understand. Um, when I started working, uh, 
it was with Arthur Anderson, which is a accounting firm that no longer exists. Um, I started, my one of my colleagues was much more French. She was sitting next to me. We made a deal, one day French, one day English, because she wanted to improve her English. I wanted to improve my French. And by the end of the six months of this experiment, I was able to speak French. Do you what other languages do you speak? I used to speak Urdu. I understand my mother, but I don't really speak. Yeah, okay. um, I now that with work, I need to be better at Spanish. So I'm going to say when, when I'm in the countries, if uh, they're speaking amongst each other or somebody who's not as good at English is speaking, I'll pick up about a good 60%. Okay. But my vocabulary is really slow. Okay. Was there a break between the, the uh, I guess they call it a CPA now. Yes. There's a CA back then and your MBA. Yes. How long? Eight years, eight and a half maybe. Oh, that's quite a break then. Yeah, yeah, I was one of the oldest students in the MBA class. What, what brought on the MBA? I wanted to do it before I turned 30. It was, okay. I was like, 29 and three quarters when the semester started. <laughs> okay. So you were a CPA uh, at Arthur Anderson, so you could have been become a partner. No, I left the firm. Okay. I, I left the, so that's why I'm like in the eight-ish years, because I did four years-ish at Arthur Anderson. I went to work as an, uh, um, in the accounting team at a software company. Um, which back then, you, like today, you couldn't do it because it was a, a client that I was working for. Um, they were going public. It was software for special effects, cool and sexy. This is before the, the, the internet bubble burst. It was an exciting place to be. I was there. I was in Montreal for two years. And then with them, I transferred to the UK for two years. Um, and then I, I left that to come and do my MBA. Okay, so you want to come back home, if you would. Um, again, math okay. of <laughs> tuition at McGill versus tuition in the U.S. Okay. So you weren't necessarily going to come back and live in Montreal forever, but it was a long time. But what did you get from the MBA? Um, the so I so I came from that accounting background. Okay. My BCom was in finance and accounting. Um, I did my, like, so I don't know if it works the same way. They, they had the concentrations. My concentrations were in marketing and strategy, so okay. very different from what I knew. Um, it was interesting. There was a couple of classes that I found extremely useful. One was negotiation, because I'm... <coughs> I'm the type of person who wants to come to consensus, to come to compromise. And one of the things that I learned, and it wasn't me who did it, I watched someone else do it, was play dirty, play take it or leave it. And that's not me. And I'm like, I can do that. That's not so hard. Um, and it was a different, it really gave me a different perspective. The other thing was really my classmates. So because, and again, I don't know if it works the same way now, but back then, McGill had an advanced program for MBA. Mm. So if you had come from a business background, you didn't have to do first year classes. 
and you did a year and a half of second year classes. So most of, when I walked into my class, most of the class had known each other from first year, they had spent an entire year going through all of that, so I didn't know anyone. And there was about six of us that were in that category, and you kind of figure it out. And we ended up being the teams a lot of the times. Mm. Um, because we didn't know each other, and we were the only ones who didn't know each other. And y yes, of course, you interact and stuff, but I still connect with them. Right. You're still in touch. I'm still in touch. So not, not all the time, but, you know, it was one of my classmates that introduced me to my then boss and now boss. Um, and that really, that's how I got into the industry, because I wasn't looking at pharma. And she introduced me to Jonathan. She said, Jonathan, you should hire her. And she told me, you know, you're going to love working for him. And I'm like, pharma, come on. Um, but the bubble had burst in um, technology. And I said, you know what, I'll try this. And it's been 21 years. So networking, is that, that's not a huge thing. Or do you do quite a bit of networking? Do I do today? Networking, yeah. So very different from when I was CFO to today. OK. Um, so I was, when I started at Paladin, right, like, so in summer of 2001, I was CFO. It was a tiny company. Fourteen and a half years later, when we sold the company, I was still CFO, but it was a much larger company. I was about getting the numbers done and getting everything, like, the numbers had to be right. The financial statements had to, like I was, I'm a conservative accountant. Everything had to be right. I had to understand. I had to be able to answer the questions. Supply chain worked for me. HR worked for me. Investor relations. So that, I was responsible for that section, and I was the person who got it done. That didn't need me to network. I knew what I was doing, and okay. if I didn't know it, I figured it out. Um, as my new job um, that has required me to be more of a networker, whether it's with bankers, whether it's other people in the industry, whether it's students. Today I'm delighted to be speaking with Samira Sakia, CEO of Knight Therapeutics, a leading pharmaceutical company in Canada and Latin America. I'm Carl Moore from McGill University and you're listening to the CO series. Next up, we'll ask Samira how she dealt with the crisis at her previous post. Top-notch insight from proven leaders. This is the CEO series with Carl Moore on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello again, you're listening to the CO series. And here I'm speaking with Samira Sakia, CEO of Knight Therapeutics. Right now, we will continue our conversation about networking. Your question of extrovert, introvert, I'm on the introvert side, and I've had to push myself out of that box, um, and I'm better at it than I used to be. But you still have your moments of inner breaks and where you want to be by yourself. Like when you, you may go eat a meal in a restaurant by yourself and read I a book. I do that all the time. <laughs> so I go, read, I go sit at the bar and talk to total strangers. But... So I'll be in an elevator and I'll start talking to someone in a hotel or like I was in. So 
In my new role, again, I'm traveling a lot. Like I'm in a hotel in uh, Colombia. It was just in end of July. I had lost my passport, so I was really stuck there. Um, go down, have breakfast. Somebody's no, like, start talking to the person at the table next to you. There's only like, you know, that I will do that, but it's not my thing to just go and do that. Okay. But you're different. I'm, not, I'm less, a lot less scared of it. But you compared to when you were 25, it's a di you're a different person. Yes, and at 25 when I was traveling, like again, I was working in Europe when I was 27-ish, yeah. and I'd have to go to Paris. I'd just go to dinner and grab a book and read while I'm having dinner. It didn't bother me at all. Okay. It doesn't bother me today. Okay. It's interesting. I used to ask this question. Now you ask it. Now the guests ask themselves. Like it's it's evolved. I, I know, I, yeah, yeah, I it's very it's predictable. Coming. Yeah, so you might as well get it out of the way. So, Jonathan, um, one of the, Jonathan is a McGill MBA grad as well. Yes, MBA law, like that with that joint degree. And he, he's a friend, but he had an incredible accident. Yes. So can you tell us about the accident and kind of how things evolved since then? Um, so Jonathan was co-founder, is was co-founder and CEO of Paladin. Um, company was founded kind of in the mid to late nineties. Okay. I joined in two thousand one. It was tiny. Um, we had been growing the company exponentially. <laughs> in twenty eleven, summer of twenty eleven, we were in the midst of. To, so we were a public company on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Um, mic, not a micro cap, but a small cap. So under a, kind of in that billion dollar, just below a billion dollar market cap. We were in two other public transactions. So one was a hostile takeover bid of a company out in Alberta. One was a friendly takeover of a company in Laval. Um, we had, it was, I'm gonna say on the Tuesday, we, on a Tuesday we had, a, on the Wednesday morning, we announced the takeover of the friendly transaction. And of, as you can imagine, CEO and CFO and our VP of sales and marketing, like everybody's working really hard. We're like, we're gonna announce this. I said, I'm gonna take a couple days off but the morning, you take these calls, I'll take these calls, and then he was going, because it was in Laval, <coughs> and one of our other executives was having a bike ride up from his cottage in the Laurentians. He's like, you know what, I'm gonna go to the company, and then I'm gonna go to the ride, because one of us had to do that. Um, on the ride, he's, they, maybe a few hundred meters from the end, falls off his bike, has a massive brain injury. Um, and I got the call, it was probably four-ish, because I know the markets were closed when I had that, um, about his accident. I'm like, I don't believe, and one, our VP, the other co-founder, VP of Marketing and Sales, I'm like, are you serious? Like, okay, he's gonna be fine. He, like, he, he, they had just arrived at the hospital. 
He's like, this is serious. We need to do stuff. I'm like, okay, I'm going to call our lawyers. I'm going to start calling the board. Um, lawyers, anyways, it was kind of chaotic for the next few days. Um, public company regulations is if there's something going on with the CEO or the CFO, it is a material event. You have to report it. The, the reason I remember it was past four is because markets are closed, so we don't have to report. Um, we were up till like 11 o'clock at night drafting. We had a whole, like between Mark and I, calling uh, investors, calling analysts, calling partners kind of the entire next day, telling our employees. And it was two days of really dealing with the fallout. And then on Monday morning, it's really, you got to, get it done. Like there's a business to run and we ran the business. Um, his, he was in a coma for six ish weeks. He had in those weeks, there was times where I think his family had been told don't count on anything, even when, and for a period of time, they keep you because of the brain injury, they were keeping him in a coma. Um, when they released kind of that, there was a point in time after where he's not responding. And there was also a concern, is he ever going to come out? And we as a company had to, you know, like Mark was working with the family. We drafted, a, we, we had to keep our shareholders up to date. We did have a press release ready to go of, we don't think he's going to be able to come back anytime soon. And on that night, his father called us and like, we were going to release it the next morning. His father's like, hold on. He moved his arm. Mm. We're like, okay, we're holding. Um, he's never been, he's, he will never be 100%. He is walking, talking, driving me bananas because he is executive chair of our company. He's a 20% shareholder. Um, but he has short-term memory issues. Um, so whenever we get into a call, we get into a meeting with anyone, five minute recap, and then we start talking. He's a personal friend, right? This was a, you know, very traumatic event that, and you got to take the leadership. Yeah. Well, we were a team. Like it wasn't just me, right? Yeah. Like Mark became interim CEO. Um, there was parts of the business that Mark hadn't been involved in and he had to come up to speed real fast. So we made that happen. Wow. When did you become CEO? A few years ago? How many years ago? Uh, last, uh, about a year ago. So, so I, was, I joined, so, um, so we sold Paladin. Uh, I stayed for a year and a bit after, so that the, the sale closed end of February of 14. I left in May of 15, and the idea was to go into retirement. Um, With all due respect, you're kind of young. You that's were young. Okay. You are young, but you were young then. <laughs> like that's why would you retire in your youngest years? Um, to see the world, to to be able to do more, right? To like something like this, right? Like I was on a call. I'm like, I gotta leave. Here's what you need to know. I text that in and I left, right? Okay. This I could do if you want. Like um, other mentoring, being on boards, whether it's charities, whether it's other companies, you can be extreme, you can, it's really that giving back rather than not doing anything. So, okay. so it's semi-retirement. Um, 
so that was the idea. Um, my now ex, then partner, had different plans. <laughs> and when we separated, I went to see Jonathan and I said, I need you to keep me busy. Like, we'd been together for a really long time. Okay. Uh, he is a friend and I knew he would do it. But Jonathan being Jonathan, we haggled on the price that he would pay me. Um, <laughs> and I started doing some part-time stuff for night at the time. Then... And he had a CFO at the time, and I didn't want to be CFO. Um, so what he did offer was, I'll split the title. You be president. I'll be CEO. You work for me. Everybody works for you. So it was a very kind of linear and then down. Okay. Um, so, and then in 29, that, so that was, I joined in September of 2016. In end of November of 2019, we did a major acquisition in South America. So a company that had, you know, we were selling two products, tiny here. Um, it, we went from being around 50 people in Canada to being 720 people in Canada and Latin. So overnight, we were that much bigger, kind of a, then we were in pandemic, nobody's moving. Yeah. Um, and September of last year, I took the CEO role and he took the chairman role. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Samira Sakia, CEO of Knight Therapeutics, a leading pharmaceutical company in Canada and Latin America. Next up, we'll ask Samira about doing mergers and acquisitions more successfully. Exclusive access to some of the most successful leaders out there. This is the CEO Series with Carl Moore on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello again, you're listening to the CEO Series and today I'm speaking with Samira Sakia, CEO of Knight Therapeutics, a leading pharmaceutical company in Canada and Latin America. You've done a fair bit of M&A. Yes. And been sold. Yes. So you've been on both. So uh, you guys have an M&A class, I guess? So. Okay, so so they don't have not learned a lot about this yet. So take what is what's important to think about an M and A from a practical viewpoint. Um. So there's always going to be things that you didn't think about. It's never the synergies are never that great. <laughs> The forecast is always wrong. Um, it's a lot harder than you think it will be. Like, we're, we're a small company, right? So it's not like I have, okay, this is my PMO team who's going to do the integration. It's just us, right? Um, when we did this acquisition, the, the diligence team and the negotiating team was me the then v now chief business officer, this, the, and neither one of them had those titles, right? So I was president, she was VP of BD, he was director of finance, because actually I, I ended up having to take CFO and we parted ways and the only way Jonathan agreed to do that is because I didn't replace him and I said, I'll take it. Okay. Um, and we had three other people from our team. So there was six of us doing all of this diligence, 
guess what? Who's doing the integration? It's us, right? So going through, and when you're doing, when you do the diligence, everything is like you, you see that top tier, right? They, you see what they want to show you. You can ask a million questions, but there's only so much you can do because you have a limited amount of time. You have, there is only so f deep, but once you own it, you're going to see everything. And <laughs> when you open the hood of that car, the cracks in the engine, you'll see that they had taped it. And that's why it looked really pretty when they showed you the picture of it. Um, you got to fix the crack, and maybe you have to take parts of that engine out. Did they ever look embarrassed? Pardon me? Like, you know, they, you know now you're the CEO, you're running them. And they went, actually, you know, did they kind of, <laughs> well, ma'am? Well, you know. What I can tell you, Two and a half years after that acquisition, there is not one executive at night that is formerly from that company. There is not one other senior director, whether it's on the commercial side, the scientific affairs side, the medical side, any part of that organization that is still with night, except for one person. Okay. If you're tuning in just now, you're listening to the CEO series, and today I'm speaking with Samir Sakia, CEO of Knight Therapeutics, a leading pharmaceutical company in Canada and Latin America. How do you reward yourself for completion? So it's funny because I, Jonathan teases me because I bought a second car last year. Um, and he's like, you're having a midlife crisis. I'm like, I'm too old to have a midlife crisis. <laughs> like, I'm not living to over 100. Like, that, that ain't happening. Um, but it's, so we've known, he and I have known each other for a long time. And this was a car that he used to own because he bought it because I had a similar car. And his car, this car is a convertible. And then he donated, like, there's a whole story behind this car. And when I was talking to him about I want to get a convertible because I'm fed up of sitting in my house, he's like, I'll get you that old Mini. I'm like, yes, done. But my other car, my regular car, is the same car that I've had for, it's going on 10 years now, and it's perfectly fine. I don't need a Bugatti, because guess where you can drive it? Like, nowhere. Um, <laughs> so what is your first car? I'm just curious. But the car that I have, it's a Countryman. Cooper Countryman. I, my second car is a Cooper convertible, and that's it. Like, and I keep like I'm like I want to get an electric car. I, I have my my one limitation is it has to properly fit in my garage without me having to struggle to park it. And the way my house is, I can't expand my garage, and it is what it is. And a Tesla won't fit. And it's like actually the small Tesla will probably do fine. And I'm like I'm not paying that kind of money. <laughs> for a car. It's a car. So I see you. I, we have a question then, <laughs> but I've ran into you a number of times that you're eating with friends in our neighborhood. Yes. So is that one of your, like, is friendship and having, breaking bread with people, is that one of your things? That, um, and actually it's one thing that I, like, it's not just with friends. I really like to do it with our team in the office, right? Okay. Um, and for me, that's where the, it, it, it's not, a. it's where you build the company culture. 
it's it's not in how you run a meeting it's how you run how you're operating outside those meetings and that is one of the things that i am really struggling with with remote work people who are insisting and the people like a lot of young people are insisting like i don't need to come in oh my goodness um or hybrid like hybrid's okay because you get there but I really struggle with that because you're not seeing. And so, and I realized actually that I was more involved with my team kind of in that off time when I'm traveling. So I'll make the time for people when I'm in Sao Paulo or Bogota or Buenos Aires or wherever, but I'm not doing that when I'm at home. And I realized that when I was listening to a podcast about somebody and I'm like, I'm forgetting the Canadian. So I started that last week. So I had dinner with some people who are in the global, like the senior team who's in the global team. Uh, I had dinner last night with some people who are around. I'm going to do lunch tomorrow with some of the Canadians, dinner with another group of people, because it's really like they need, like people need to not just interact with each other in that off environment, but also with the leaders. Is it different doing business in Latin America than in Canada? Um, Yes and no. So across the board, it takes a lot more words to get to the answer. Um, The explanation explanation takes three different ways of saying it before we get to the answer. I think the other... So... What I found is it really does, it's less about the, the, less about the culture, because you, you can get to the answer with more words. But there is a lot of people who will hide behind the more words because they don't know the answer. And it takes a little bit longer to figure that out. Um, because a lot of important words are said, and then you're like, okay, but you didn't answer my question. And one of the things that I did is I, so one of our board members is former board member of Biotoscana, which is a company that we bought. He's Argentinian. And he's like, but Samira, this is Argentina, this is Latin America. You need to learn to, you need to slow down. You need to listen more. And I'm like, Nico, there is three times I'm going to ask that question. I am happy to listen, but if they can't answer the question, it's because they don't know what they're doing. Partly, you're scary because you're a CA, CFO, so you actually, you're a hard finance I, person. I gave up my designation. I'm yeah, not we a still CA know, anymore. though, like, you know, <laughs> which is fair enough, but we still know that you're a CPA, you're the CFO, you know numbers better than we, like, it's a bit, <laughs> is that not a bit intimidating? But, but those are not the questions that I'm asking. Okay. Those are not, so this is one where if you kind of ask me, like, did I learn it in my MBA class? No, but customer segmentation or identifying who's your customer in what part of this value chain because we are providing drugs for patients, but patients are not our customers, right? (laughs) They're they're, They're not the customer. Is it the doctor? Yes. Is there a payer? Yes. 
each one of these customers needs to be segmented. So I'm asking a question about customer segmentation. Okay, well, that's not a finance question. That is a marketing question. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And th that is where people will struggle. Okay. You change your, you, but so you change your personality and approach in Latin America. I've changed my personality and approach across the board. So you've learned from dealing with Latin Americans to be better in North America or U.S. and Canada? Yes. I, I've, I've had to learn patience. Today I'm delighted to be speaking with Samira Sakia, CEO of Knight Therapeutics, a leading pharmaceutical company in Canada and Latin America. I'm Carl Moore from McGill University. Next up, we'll ask Samira about her position on McGill's Board of Governors. They made it, and they're telling you how. You're listening to the CEO Series with Carl Moore on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello again, you're listening to the CEO Series, and today I'm speaking with Samira Sakia, CEO of Knight Therapeutics, a leading pharmaceutical company in Canada and Latin America. Who does strategy? Like, you're the CEO. Do you do the strategy, or how do you do strategy? Um, there is... So our chief business officer, she's really good at that. And uh, the issue that she and I struggle with is time, right? So we need to look at certain, you know, how are we, you look at a, like, like a market like Argentina, really smart people working there, really terrible government with a completely disastrous economic situation. Mm. So what do we do to make it work? We have, and what I, what I talk to her about is, I need you to work with the country manager to figure out how do we, where do we play in Argentina? How do we play and what should we do? That is kind of a feature problem. But then I'm like, Jeff, who's our VP of commercial, I'm like, you need to figure out what's the structure we need for the pipeline and the products that we have for today. So he's attacking one end, she's attacking another. And she's like, well, why is he looking at this? I'm like, because we have a problem here and now. You need to, you're in business development, you need to know how the market is working, you need to know how the market is evolving and what products they will pay for. But that is a different analysis than what do we have today. Um, so that's how we attack it is we got to plan for a few years out, but we also got to execute today. Okay. So you're on the board of McGill. Board of Governors, yes. Yes, ma'am. So you're my boss's boss's boss's, I'm not sure, but. Yeah. So how long have you been on the board? Good question. Um, a while. A while, 2017, 18, 18 maybe? So uh, tell us about being on the board. Like how often does it meet, who's on it, and what do you do? Um, so it meets probably every quarter-ish. Um, I'm also on a couple of committees. So there is, I'm gonna say there's about six meetings a year, but they really cover the September to May time period. They, they, I mean, y'all are on vacation, yeah. so is the board. Um, the topics covered is things like budget, things like um, 
you know, investments, things like audit, um, the research funding, basically every part of the school. There, there's different presentations from different teams. There is, a, there is an event that is with Senate. There is, um, it's, it's um, one of the things, so I'm on two different boards. Like, it's very interesting for me because McGill University and MUHC, which is the McGill University Hospital Center, are two separate and distinct institutions with two separate and distinct kind of constitutions with a different reporting structure, a different governance. Their connection is the research institute and the, the teaching. But otherwise, they operate very differently. The size of the institution is about the same. Each one is about a billion dollar budget, operating budget or revenue. If you're tuning in just now, you're listening to the CEO series, and today I'm speaking with Samir Sakia, CEO of Knight Therapeutics, a leading pharmaceutical company in Canada and Latin America. Okay. What have you learned from being on boards and things like that? How has it enriched you, not enriched you, but how has it made you more insightful or whatever? Again, it goes to patience. Okay. It goes to when there is silence, you don't have to talk. Um, <laughs> like you, you learn this. I, I, I'm not always the youngest person on the board, but there are people who have a lot more varied experiences, maybe, um, and <coughs> their presence, their thoughtfulness, or maybe their lack of thoughtfulness really gets you to think of what do I think of that? Do I, do I, do I want to emulate or do I want to go in the other direction? So that has been a really huge learning for me in especially the bigger boards because we're a much smaller company, right? So yes, yeah. we're publicly listed, but we have a large shareholder. It's extremely entrepreneurial, and you want to focus on governance, but you also don't want to be bogged down with governance. So how do you find that happy medium? And this is what, you know, the, the chairperson of the McGill board, Marise, she's phenomenal. She's extremely thoughtful, and she has an opinion, and she says it. Like, and, and I'm, you know, like, she's fantastic. I can learn from that. Okay. So you mentor some people. Yes. I just started. I, we, we, okay. we were supposed to have a meeting earlier today, and another meeting um, upended that. So, so I won't I, ask you what you've learned from mentoring. Was it... Are you, how, when are you a reverse mentor? Is that a, a concept in your mind? So kind of every day, because a lot of the people I work with are a lot younger than me. Okay. Um, so it, there is a different perspective of, but it's also what I learn is, okay, you know, and again, this goes to that hybrid work or that remote work where you're not talking to people as often as I would like because it's in that off camera of, okay, we're going to talk about these topics. Okay, meeting's done. Adios. Um, that it's, it's not happening. But you see kind of how people want to hear things, 
what's important, what's driving them bananas with what you're doing. Um, and it's in that casual time where they will ask questions. And I, I've, like, I, I know I said I need to yell at people, but I was also a very open person. Like my door was literally always open. People did come in. Um, I, majority of the time, like, you know, most, most people will go out for lunch at the office because it's like that's their break. I'm like, no, I'm having lunch at the office, in the cafeteria, with the team. And that's where you are reverse mentored. Okay. How should they reverse mentor executives like you? Like, how should they approach you to be effective in reverse mentoring? The, the thing that I would say is be, you, you don't, you should feel free to ask questions. You should feel free to state your opinions. You don't have to um, prepare a script. You don't have to, at least with me, I don't want a script. I don't want, these are the three questions you should be asking the leadership. It's like you should be asking what's really important to you, right? So go off script. Okay. Be respectful, but of course. that's true of anyone. <laughs> but it's something where they would teach you about social media, presumably. Yes. And apps. Yes. Like the Google Translate, where you can just scan it over the menu and you know what's on the menu? Yes. <laughs> this has been the CO Series. Thank you for speaking with us today, Samira. I'd also like to take a moment to hear from one of my undergraduate students and the show producer, Gabby Hartshorn-Mill. Gabby, what's your take on today's interview? Thank you very much, Professor. I wanted to direct the conversation back to a common theme I noticed during this conversation, the importance of relationships. When Ms. Sakia spoke about bringing employees back from remote work and how the pandemic harmed organizational culture, and also when she spoke of reverse mentoring, I think that her value of authentic and impactful business relationships came to light. I am someone who, like Ms. Sakia, appreciates real conversation and the human aspect of business, beyond the mere employee-employer uh, transaction. I think that restoring this norm in a post-COVID corporate world is a challenging and important task that many executives must tackle. Thanks, Gabby. I, I definitely have to agree. Thank you also to our technical producer, Marco Campagna, and our scriptwriter, Stephanie Richet. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. Hello, and welcome to another Producer's Cut edition of the CEO series. My name is Gabby Hartshorn-Bell. I am a student of Professor Carl Moore at McGill and the producer of this show. This week, Professor Moore has granted me the opportunity to share my favorite parts of our newest episode, the interview with Samira Sakia, CEO of Knight Therapeutics. I am very excited to get started. I want to jump right in with Ms. Sakia's takeaway from her McGill MBA. My concentrations were in marketing and strategy, so very different from what I knew. Um, it was interesting. There was a couple of classes that I found extremely useful. One was negotiation, because I'm, I'm the type of person who wants to come to consensus, to come to compromise. And one of the things that I learned, and it wasn't me who did it, I watched someone else do it, was play dirty, play, t 
take it or leave it. And that's not me. And I'm like, I can do that. That's not so hard. Um, and it was a different, it really gave me a different perspective. Previously someone who aimed for compromise, Ms. Sakia learned a negotiation class, a tactic that is more cutthroat. Generally speaking, I think that oftentimes women find themselves in a mediation role during negotiations. And so I applaud Ms. Sakia for stepping out of this norm and into one that is more direct and swift. With that being said, I also want to reference our recent guest, Barry Nailbuff, a Yale professor and pro-negotiator, because I'm not sure this tactic aligns well with those promoted in his book, Splitting the Pie. Professor Nailbuff promotes negotiation as an opportunity for synergistic alliance, and thus cooperation is very much necessary. Nonetheless, there is certainly more than one way to negotiate. Sometimes the situation calls for a niche tactic. Professor Moore also asked about networking, and Ms. Sakia provided an interesting comparison of her position as CFO to CEO. So networking, is that, that's not a huge thing, or do you do quite a bit of networking? Do I do today? Networking, yeah. So, very different from when I was CFO to today. Okay. Um, so, I was, when I started at Paladin, right, like, so, in summer of 2001, I was CFO, it was a tiny company. 14 and a half years later, when we sold the company, I was still CFO, but it was a much larger company. I was about getting the numbers done and getting everything, like the numbers had to be right, the financial statements had to, like I was, I'm a conservative accountant, everything had to be right, I had to understand, I had to be able to answer the questions, supply chain worked for me, HR worked for me, investor relations. So that, I was responsible for that section and I was the person who got it done. That didn't need me to network. I knew what I was doing and okay. if I didn't know it, I figured it out. Um, as my new job, um, that has required me to be more of a networker, whether it's with bankers, whether it's other people in the industry, whether it's students. As an introvert, it was an adjustment for Ms. Sakia to go from CFO to CEO. Although CFO is a chief position and thus also requires significant flexibility on the introversion extrover extroversion spectrum, tasks are often procedural and have less of a human aspect to them. CEO obviously requires significant introversion and extroverted capabilities. Ms. Sakia also enlightened us with her perspective on M&A. There's always going to be things that you didn't think about. It's never... The synergies are never that great. <laughs> the forecast is always wrong. Um, it's a lot harder than you think it will be. Like we're, we're a small company, right? So it's not like I have, okay, this is my PMO team who's going to do the integration. It's just us, right? She has been on both sides of the deal and thus can speak to many of the practical challenges both companies face in the interaction. I love the metaphor she used about the taped down engine under the hood of the car. After the era of necessary remote work due to the COVID pandemic, companies are now having a more difficult time restoring organizational culture in the workplace. Here's what Ms. Sakia had to say on the matter. So is that one of your, like, is friendship and having breaking bread with people, is that one of your things? 
that um, and actually it's one thing that I like it's not just with friends I really like to do it with our team in the office right okay. um, and for me that's where the, it, it it's not a it's where you build the company culture it's it's not in how you run a meeting it's how you run how you're operating outside those meetings and that is one of the things that i am really struggling with with remote work people who are insisting or hybrid like hybrid's okay because you get there but i really struggle with that because you're not seeing and so and i realized actually that i was more involved with my team kind of in that off time when I'm traveling. So I'll make the time for people when I'm in Sao Paulo or Bogota or Buenos Aires or wherever, but I'm not doing that when I'm at home. And I realized that when I was listening to a podcast about somebody and I'm like, I'm forgetting the Canadian. So I started that last week. So I had dinner with some people who are in the globe, like the senior team who's in the global team. Uh, I had dinner last night with some people who are around. I'm going to do lunch tomorrow with some of the Canadians, dinner with another group of people, because it's really like they need, like people need to not just interact with each other in that off environment, but also with the leaders. Her perspective resonates with me because I feel I had a similar experience even at McGill. Online learning, just like work from home, is a challenge for extroverts. However, I think some introverts enjoy and prefer the ability to work alone and not go into the office. I think this has made the transition back to normal for some offices quite difficult, since not everyone wants to come back. Like Ms. Sakia put it, relationships and bonds and culture are formed in between meetings. Going out for dinner with colleagues or getting to know su supervisors on work trips are interactions that have become increasingly rare. I am hoping, like Ms. Sakia, that we will hopefully return to a time where these moments become the norm again. They are part of what makes the office a human experience instead of only a transactional one. To finish off this edition of the Producer's Cut, I would like to share some advice offered by Ms. Sakia in relation to reverse mentoring. I think, she I think what she said here is valuable. Relationships are key in any industry. I think her advice is related to what we mentioned before about the COVID pandemic and remote work as inhibitors of organizational culture and the human aspect of business. The best way to connect with superiors sometimes is just to go off script, as Ms. Sakia puts it, and let them get to know the real you. The, the thing that I would say is be, you, you don't, you should feel free to ask questions. You should feel free to state your opinions. You don't have to um, prepare a script. You don't have to, at least with me, I don't want a script. I don't want, these are the three questions you should be asking the leadership. It's like you should be asking what's really important to you, right? So go off script. I think that is a nice way to end off. Thank you very much for tuning in to this mini episode of Professor Moore's CEO series. It has been an honor to share my ideas with you. Thank you very much to Professor Moore for allowing me the space to contribute my thoughts. As always, à la prochaine.